RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Space, the final frontier. Also another day at the office for our guest tonight. It is 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. It must be time for Mission Log Live. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Back at it another week. Your Star Trek pals. That's us, along with you, our Star Trek pals, doing the live thing like we do. Tonight, we have the privilege of welcoming one of those guests who truly helps us bridge science and science fiction. He's Canadian astronaut Dr. Robert Thirsk, and he has logged more days in space than anyone else from his agency. We will meet Dr. Thirsk in a moment, and that is where you come in. Yeah, we want you to be part of this conversation. And you know how to do it. Click the Zoom meeting link or use the one tap from your smartphone. Or you can call us at 669-900-6833. 669-900-6833. Then you enter the meeting code on the screen or in the description. Seriously, when is the last time you talked to somebody who had been off the planet? This is one of the things that we do here at Mission Log Live. We bring in, you know, fun and interesting people for you to talk to. You bring your questions. You bring your comments. Earl, standing by for all of them at 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or follow the links on Facebook. Uh, one last thing, however you're finding us, be that you know live right now on YouTube or Facebook, or if you're catching it later, one of those places, or the audio-only production, however you're finding us, we're really glad you're here. Please do us a favor. Hit like. Hit share. That way, more fun people like you can be in on more fun conversations like these. Hey, and uh, speaking of fun conversations and speaking of you, our friends, our Star Trek pals who are watching tonight, let's say hello, shall we? Uh, there's Chris Riker welcoming, I think, all of us by saying the Tranya's chilled and we're all here. Uh, there's Joy saying, uh, my dog is having the cutest reaction to the beeping right now. You're welcome, Joy. Uh, there's Matthew Corey. There's Scott Paul. I'm saying to hey, everybody. Everybody say hey to Scott. There's Kim. Uh, there's Scott Mays. There's Carlos. Uh, there's Barry. So uh, all the scientists in the house tonight. Uh, there's Michael. There's Tate. Uh, there's Dave. Uh, oh, and, and I love it that um, so John Cooley, uh, he chimed in early, says, greetings, gentle beings, and welcome, Dr. Thirst. And, of course, Casey replies to that with Cooley. So uh, everybody is there. Everybody is saying hello. And, of course, you know what to do. You just click on that Zoom link if you want to join us. We can see your lovely face and you join in the conversation with the three of us or click on that smart, uh, sorry, the one tap from your smartphone or dial the number and we'll be chatting. We'll be talking. Hey, Ken, uh, before we get to everything else, how about a little a little news? There was some Star Trek stuff that happened over the weekend, right? Was there? Was there I, really? Uh, yeah, I know, right? It's so strange. Yeah. yeah. Oh, by, by the way, really quickly, Shannon says Canadians represent. So there you go, Shannon. Uh, that was for you and for Dr. Thirst. Hey, so. don't tell Canadians what to do, Shannon. <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. So, yeah, um, big stuff that came out of Comic-Con. Of course, we got a new trailer for the Picard series. We got a new trailer for Discovery Season 3. Um, and then they dropped a, a, a surprise short track, you know, normally they like to build up to these things, but they just, you know, just, just put one right out there. And then, uh, I guess the next short track is actually this week. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, on the 15th. Okay. Oh, yeah. is that, oh, it's later this week. I thought it was like, I thought it was like day after tomorrow or something. Oh, like oh no, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. It is actually day after it was on the 10th and then we'll be back on the 15th. My bad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. which, whichever. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So that all happened. And of course, we had a couple of friends out there or a few friends out there as well. at Comic -Con, Yes. I mean. Yeah, we, we did have uh, Women at Warp and we had Priority One on the scene doing some live reporting. So check out what they have already written. Check out Daily Star Trek News because they uh, covered little snippets of everything that was happening there. But here's your homework, everybody. You go watch those trailers. Go watch the two episodes, Q&A, and then uh, the other one, <laughs> The Trouble with Edward. Come back and join us on the 15th and we'll talk about those. Uh, cause that was a surprise, a surprise for everybody. CBS is just like, Hey, boom, here's Star Trek for you. Guess what? More Star Trek next week. Boom. You weren't expecting yeah, I, that. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> right. wonder if they're going to have to start doing stuff like that because if you watch the streaming landscape at this point, 
We've got uh, what Disney Plus coming up in November. We've got mm-hmm. uh, Apple TV Plus coming up at the beginning of November. Uh, you're starting to see a bunch of other moves from a bunch of other people as well. Like Hulu just this week made it possible to actually download content to watch it later, which is amazing because Hulu has yeah. been around for like 11 years. I think it was 2008, maybe 2007. So like 11 or 12 years Hulu has been out there. And now they have this neat idea that everybody else has had as well. There's starting to be so much movement in that space. It's, I mean, on the one hand, it was surprising that CBS surprised everybody. On the other hand, they got to do something because that whole field right now is just on fire. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, and as people are pointing out uh, right now in the chat, we have those short tracks, then Picard right there on January 23rd. And then we expect maybe a little bit of a break before we're either getting Discovery or Lower Decks or some combination thereof. So there's a lot more new Star Trek coming next year than we've had in several years, because up until now, you know, we had these kind of short seasons of uh, disco uh, 15 episodes in the first season and then, uh, what, 13 in the second uh, season. I think that's right. Yeah, something like uh, that. I might be wrong. Whatever. But what I'm saying is a lot more Trek to come. So we'll have a lot more Mission Log Live to talk live about your reactions to that. By the way, I think I opened a whole can of worms by uh, reading the message about Canada represent uh, because we've already got references to ketchup chips uh, happening right here. Uh, Alan saying I have honorary Canadian status. I don't even know what that is, but apparently it's a thing. So uh, there's just a lot of Canada talk going on now. Um, Paul says I went to Canada once, maybe twice, once for sure. So <laughs> this is this is what's happening in the chat right now. And uh, hey, Laura. Uh, hey, David. And uh, uh, hey, everybody else. So it, it, it's it's turned into a whole Canada thing. I don't know how that happened. We've lost control of the show, Ken. I guess so. I guess hey, so. Uh, really quickly, we were talking about new Star Trek. But of course, you had uh, Aaron Harvey on last week talking about mm-hmm. uh, really old Star Trek, talking <laughs> about the animated series. Um, that, of course, brought up last week's poll question. And then uh, I'll go ahead and hit people to what that was. And then you can tell people about this week's question as well. Yeah. Uh, last week, the question was, which Star Trek animated character would you rather see in live action Trek? Uh, the two choices were Mress and Eric's. And I cannot believe it was as close as it was. And it wasn't even that close, but I can't believe it was as close as it was. Uh, Mress, 59%. Eric's, 41%. Now, yeah, we know what the correct answer is. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, it's morass. Absolutely. <laughs> there really is no question. Here's the thing. I, I, I appreciate the challenge of like, he's got three legs. He's got three arms. He's got that weird head. Let's see how they do that. And really, though, the correct answer is morass. And so the 59% <laughs> of your way to go, 41%. Hey, maybe in season, you know, eight of whatever uh, they do that in. Uh, we do have a new poll question this week. Uh, John sort of uh, sort of playing into our guest tonight. Yeah, we do. So the question we posed to you, space, would you go? Well, last time I checked, 88% of you said yes. 12% of you said no. Now, as we do with the poll questions, uh, unlike last week, we just we make them very difficult and vague uh, because there's so many conditional answers around this. Although I was amused by a few that I picked out. Dave said uh, 21st century, no. 23rd century, Yes, I think we might be able to talk to our guest about that tonight. Uh, Rufus says, one-way ticket. Sign him up. He is ready to go. BJ says, seeing Earth from orbit is the only item on my bucket list. So uh, overwhelmingly, people do want to go. But there are a lot of people who are like, hmm, how, though? How am I going to get there? That really is the question. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I would love to say, yes, I would absolutely do that. I would absolutely do that is what I would love to say. I wouldn't do that. I, I sometimes I can't get on a plane and I don't mean I, I've never not gotten on a plane when I was supposed to, but sometimes yeah. I'm like, yeah, it seems kind of far. Uh, space seems a tiny bit further. Now, uh, if we had a space elevator, I'd, I'd be in line. I'd be mashing the button, just waiting, waiting, waiting. I might even talk to people on the way up because, you know, it'd take a, take a little while. It was a long trip. Yeah, it was a yeah, long it was trip. Very long trip. Hey, uh, let's introduce our guest. Uh, now, a funny, interesting story about this. Uh, rewind a few months, end of May, a bunch of friends and I were on this cruise on Alaska on the Queen Elizabeth. Very exciting anyway. But as cruises do, they have special guests who come on board and give lectures and talk about their area of expertise. And I was super excited to see in the program that one of these guests 
is an astronaut. And I, I, I had to go see this for myself and I had to go uh, hear what he had to say. Well, imagine my surprise and how pleased I was that I'm sitting in on one of those lectures and at a certain point, up comes a picture of Kirk and Spock. Yes, he references Star Trek in his lecture about life in actual space. So struck up a conversation with Dr. Thirsk after that and absolutely had to have him on the show. Now, Dr. Robert Thirsk holds the Canadian Space Agency record for the most days spent in space. He logged over 204 days in total. He flew on space shuttle mission STS-78. He even wrote a couple of newspaper articles that were published while he was in orbit. He was the first Canadian astronaut to fly on a Soyuz spacecraft, and he logged 188 days on the International Space Station, uh, one of his first long-term residents, actually. Um, and on that, he carried a number of duties, including experiments about long-term effects of microgravity on human health. So we're going to get into a lot of really cool details. Uh, it is a distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Thirsk. Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, John, uh, thank you very much for that uh, warm welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you and Ken uh, this evening and with all of the, your listeners as well. Thank you for having me. Well, we are very excited to have you here. Um, I, I guess the place that I want to start is actually with our poll question, uh, because we we ask people just sort of a binary yes or no. Do you want to go to space? And that really does raise the question of the difficulty of getting there. Um it's not the easiest thing in the world, easier now maybe than it was 50 years ago, um, but it's still quite a challenge and it, it doesn't necessarily feel accessible to everyone. Do you think that we're due for a change and what that landscape is like? Do you think that space tourism will be a thing that helps to normalize space travel for people? Uh, yes. Well, you know, I was listening to your poll results and um you know, those 12 percent who voted no, they would not want to go to space. I, I think a lot of uh, them would probably be turned off by the fact that the the ride up to space and the ride home today in the 21st century is still quite a rollicking ride. And uh, yes, we've lost uh, people in, in space before, and it's usually during ascent or, or during reentry. A tremendous amount of uh, kinetic and potential energy means, needs to be gained in order to you know, get into uh, orbital flight. And then at the end of the mission, a lot of kinetic and, and uh, potential energy needs to be dissipated. And that, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. So the, the ride up and down is um, is something you have to reckon with. If you're going to become an astronaut, you got to decide whether or not the, the risk of space flight is, is worth the, um, the benefits. For me and for all my astronaut colleagues, yes, of course it is. You know, the opportunity to fulfill a childhood dream the opportunity to do something that few other people have done, to go where no one has gone before. Oh, I like the sound of that. That's uh, that's good. That's good. eh? (laughs) Um, To work with the best organizations in the world and and to work with the best people in the world. To me, that greatly offsets the the risk of uh, of injury or or, or death. And, um, you know, maybe one last comment to make, John, is that that view out the window, it's life-changing. It's mind-bending. And, uh, you know, you, you get transfixed looking at um, Earth, all one, see how all the civilizations, all of the countries are, are actually connected. And it changes your perspective on what's really important in life. So I, I, I hope that um, many of us uh, will listening tonight will have the opportunity to, to fly in space. Yeah, I'm a strong supporter of space tourism. Uh, I don't think that we're going to change the world if we fly tens of people a year, but if we change if we can fly tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people a year, um, the space perspective will have an impact on civilization and society. Can I ask, uh, forgive me, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I mean, obviously the devil's advocate or maybe just the devil at this point, because I think this is a question that does come up for people occasionally. I mean, you've made a great case for, you know, why it's you know neat for you uh, being someplace that nobody has fulfilling a dream, things like that. You must get naysayers who come up to you occasionally and say, why, why are we bothering going to space? What are we learning? What are we getting out of that? Why are we doing this? Uh, pretend I'm that person. And rather than punching me, uh, tell me what your answer would be. Well, I, I heard you or John say there's a number of Canadians that are listening tonight. Uh, <laughs> the first uh, thing is it's a, it's a moneymaker. So the Canadian government invests $350 million of taxpayer dollars a year 
uh, in the space program. And our space companies uh, get revenue typically in four and five billion dollars a year. Hmm. And that's because our country has chosen niche areas uh, to work in, niche areas that bring benefit to citizens, telecommunications, remote sensing, and then robotics, uh, of course. So number one, it's a no-brainer. We make money doing it. But we've adapted uh, the robot arm. We contributed the robot arm to the space shuttle and also to the International Space Station. We've uh, taken the control algorithms off the arm, some of the gearing technology, the haptics, which has been like the force moment feedback that the operator gets in in their hand controllers, uh, and the vision system. And we've created uh, surgical uh, robots for it now. So these surgical robots are saving, saving people's lives. When I was in space, uh, we were able to crystallize uh, protein crystals of what's called hematopoietic prostaglandin D synthase, which means nothing to you, but it's the protein that you find in the muscle fibers of uh, young boys who suffer from Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Hmm. And um, scientists now have created an inhibitor of that protein, and it's in clinical trials. So perhaps the mission that I, the second mission that I flew on, could potentially bring on. Uh, a solution to this terrible disease that afflicts young people. And then um, I'd say that uh, we inspire the population. When I I grew up in a magical time, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. That's when society was really moving fast in all areas, civil rights, entertainment, education, but also in science and tech as well. And after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, there's a saying that if we can put a man on the moon, then why can't we fill in the blank? And, um, you know, so why can't we address universal health care? Why can't we uh, deal with pension reform, things like that? And I think of the Apollo mission, perhaps the most important outcome of the Apollo missions was that it inspired society that if we focus our efforts, if we collaborate across uh, disciplines, uh, if we invest the resources, humanity, number one, can leave planet Earth. And number two, we can uh, attack some of these tough social problems. And then the last thing I would say is that um, I was inspired by the Apollo astronauts, by the Russian cosmonauts back then. And, and I was inspired to pursue an educational path that eventually led to a very satisfying career. And there's hundreds of thousands of other young people like me as well that um, did that as well. So I think I contribute to the innovation and the science culture in my, my country. And that's uh, indirectly, directly a result of the space program. See, it's interesting that you would uh, you would use that line. Um, uh, if we can put a man on the moon, as my mother used to say that as well. She would say, if we can put a man on the moon, uh, why not all of them? Uh, <laughs> that, that was uh, that was her thing. Um, uh, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned about uh, sort of the the medical end and the the impact on the human body of going into space, particularly for long term space flight, uh, because I, I know that that's something you're working on now. And I, I do want to talk about that. And that was actually uh, some of the questions that came in. Chris in the chat says uh, any deleterious effects, eyes, bones. And then uh, Joy uh, follows up saying, wow, how was the recovery after all those days in space? So if you could talk a little bit about your own experience and then kind of lead that into what your uh, experiments were like in space and how that's led you to what you're doing now. Well, you know, space is a different environment in which to live. And the three major factors that affect human physiology would be ionizing radiation, we're exposed to higher fluxes of ionizing radiation in low Earth orbit and then in, in deep space when someday we go to Mars. Uh, secondly, weightlessness, which probably affects every single organ system in the body uh, to a, a large or a small degree. But the organ systems we're most concerned about are the heart and the blood vessels, muscles and the bones. And so we have to come up with countermeasures that prevent the body from atrophying uh, away. And then the third issue, especially for long-duration spaceflight, would be the, um, the isolation and confinement. You know, living aboard um, a spacecraft is not like uh, a cruise aboard the Queen Elizabeth uh, ship. It's a little bit more rustic than that. And you're fewer waiters. From family. A lot fewer waiters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, separated from family and friends and loved ones, and um, that can take a, a psychosocial toll on you as, as well. Um, most of the effects of weightlessness on the body, you know, atrophy of the heart, atrophy of the muscles, 
decalcification of the bones, uh, that's reversible uh, to, uh, to a large extent uh, when you get back home. It, sometimes it takes several months to regain the, the muscle mass you lost or to regain the calcium that you've lost, but largely it's reversible. Ionizing radiation effects are not, it's cumulative. So I've been subjected to um, more ionizing radiation than you have, uh, John, and therefore I'm at risk of certain things such as cataracts, uh, changes to my genetic organs, and then also uh, cancer. So cancers like thyroid cancer, uh, bone cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, um, I need to be checked every year to make sure that these nasty things are, are not there. The chance of me getting anything like that are extremely small, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's still important to, uh, to monitor that. Uh, your, uh, your listener asked about vision as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, vision can be affected. I was one of the first astronauts who was affected by, um, by vision. I noticed after about a month in space that my near vision was going away. I, I had trouble focusing cameras on near objects. And I had difficulty reading some of the documents that were sent up to us by Mission Control. They uh, they sent them up with eight font, very small font. <laughs> and wow. um, so we, we realized uh, another crew member, one of my crewmates, was also affected by this visual loss. And uh, we eventually did ultrasounds on our eyeballs and saw some swelling in the back of our eyeballs. And then we did fundoscopy. We looked at pictures of the back of our eyeballs. And we saw something called papilledema, which is kind of scary. It often indicates that your intracranial pressure is, is elevated. When um, we got back home after the mission, uh, we had some MRIs or images done of our eyes, and we could see that the eyeball, which is normally spherical, was actually flattened on one end. And that explained why the focal length was different in the Hi. eyeball and why we became uh, hyperopic. Uh, most of us have regained... Uh, after several months, several years, we've regained our normal vision um, once we got back home. Not everyone has. So that's still a, a concern. I'm curious because the, the work that you're doing now as far as, um, as, far as deep space exploration, is that, is that about proximity or is about, that about time spent in space? Because then what I'm thinking about is you are, I mean, as an astronaut, you're already a part of a pretty small group, but then as much time as you've had in space, I mean, that's not like, I'm thinking about, uh, I can't remember. It was Mark Kelly who spent as much time in space as he did, or was it Scott? I can't remember. Scott. Scott. No, okay. Scott. I mean, so I heard your numbers and I immediately thought of Scott Kelly. And then after that, I don't like, is there somebody who's like, oh man, I had 186 days. If I had just, <laughs> or, or are you, are you pretty far removed or are you and, uh, and Scott Kelly pretty far removed from the amount of time that other people have stayed up? Uh, well, even before the era of the international space station, there was a Russian space station called Mir mm-hmm. and uh, a Russian doctor uh, named uh, Polyakov. Dr. Polyakov spent uh, just over 400 days in one, sh- in one flight in space. So he holds the, um, the world record. Uh, I have some uh, Russian colleagues uh, who are friends that over a number of missions have spent, oh, 850, 900 days total in, in space. But that's over four or five missions uh, or so. Uh, but Ken, you're asking about deep space. Um, the medical issues of deep space are going to be larger, more severe than what they've are aboard the International Space Station or during a short-duration flight. Um, it's no longer going to be isolation confinement. It's going to be extreme isolation and confinement. Uh, higher do- even higher doses of ionizing uh, radiation. And then also a concern about how do we deliver health care to people in deep space. So, Ken, for example, if you're on Mars right now, and I'm at Mission Control in Houston, and in the morning I get up and I say, good morning, Ken, It's going to take you 20 minutes to hear me say good morning. And it's going to take another 20 minutes for me to hear your good morning back. So uh, that's one issue. But say uh, you're calling the ground to say um, my my astronaut friend, John, has just uh, had a cardiac arrhythmia. Can you help me? Well, it's going to take me 20 minutes on the ground to even hear your your call for help. Hmm. So um, healthcare delivery is going to be different. different. It has to be more autonomous. You are going to have to be responsible for taking care of uh, 
your crewmates. You can't depend on the earth and you're going to rely on autonomous systems or AI, artificial intelligence systems. You're going to laugh when I say this, but uh, one of my favorite movies when I was young was 2001, A Space Odyssey. And um, the intelligence aboard that spacecraft, I think it's called Discovery, heading off to Jupiter, mm-hmm. was Hal 9000. And, you know, Hal got involved in some drama in that, uh, in that movie. But uh, Hal was responsible for operating a spacecraft and actually for the life support system. There were several crew ma- members that were in hibernation. And that's what we're going to need for Mars. We're going to need an R2-D2 or a C-3PO to help us out uh, to take care of these medical emergencies as they, as they come up. So we're right now starting to consider what are some of the technologies, the virtual care technologies that we're going to need to um, deliver health care. Um, and I think the first, when I say autonomous, I think, yeah, we're going to need AI to help us out. But number, number two, I think we're going to need, have to have uh, mandatory to have a, a crew member who's a medical doctor aboard that space flight. Uh, right now, that's not the case. Once in a while, there is a medical doctor that's part of the crew of the ISS. Most of the time, there's not. And um, that's okay because you can get a sick crew member from the space station down to Earth in, you know, one or two days. Uh, you can do that. But you can't do that on Mars. Uh, once you've headed off to Mars, you're committed for two and a half years. And so I really think a specially trained medical doctor must be a member of the Mars Exploration Crew. Hey, uh, we have some amazing questions coming into the chat right now. Uh, Kenneth, Chris, uh, Scott, I, I see all of them. But we do have a couple of callers standing by who want to go to first. We have Scott, who is waiting patiently. Scott, are you there? I am there, Ken and John. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? Welcome to the show and uh, welcome to meeting Dr. Thursk. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? Mine is a two-part question. By the way, John and Ken, you're doing an awesome job still. May I give you kudos? Oh, thank but, you. It's very kind of you to say. Uh, I missed you, Ken. Uh, my <laughs> question is a two. It's a two-parter for Dr. Thirsk. Um, I want to say, other than John and Ken's job, I am so jealous of yours and envious. Um, it's a wonderful thing that you get to do. Uh, my question is, I guess, a two-parter, but do you think with, with the knowledge that you have, that making it to Mars is going to be a viable thing by around 2030 as they project. And in a Star Trek-ish B part, do you think that living and working in spaces as they portray on the shows, do you think with our technology, really seriously, would that ever be a feasible thing? You were already explaining some of it with the gravity uh, mountain that we'd have to overcome and the effects on the body. But do you think that would ever be a feasible thing as they portray on the show would we ever get there in your opinion uh well, thanks scott first of all um to, to scott and all the listeners please call me uh, bob or dr bob uh you're all considered friends now so bob <laughs> um so um yeah I, I think that uh someday we will see um space flight as portrayed in star trek so th- think of some of the technologies that we saw on the original Star Trek show, we saw a uh, tricorder, Dr. McCoy's tricorder, where he diagnoses and treats uh, illness. That exists today. There's just recently a Qualcomm XPRIZE, $10 million XPRIZE that was won by, by a company, but there's 10 other companies that also developed a tricorder. The food replicator uh, exists in NASA laboratories uh, right now. The, um, the pad that uh, Captain Kirk uh, used to you know, issue notes, that's, uh, it's an iPad Today, voice recognition exists today. So 23rd technologies that were portrayed in uh, Star Trek uh, are coming into existence today in the, in the 21st century. There's a few other things that were portrayed in Star Trek that uh, I don't think we're, we're going to see in the near future. Teleportation, I don't know how that's actually going to work. I, that's beyond me. And warp drive, um, I don't understand how that would work. I, we may not see that. But... Um, Scott, maybe not for you, but maybe for your grandchildren or your great grandchildren. I think that space flight will be as routine as taking an, uh, an airplane flight uh, today. And that means flights to the moon, flights to, to Mars. We need a better rocket technology. I don't think chemical rockets are going to be useful, you know, for your grandchildren. But um, yeah, I, I think that we're going to be uh, an extraplanetary civilization uh, in 
before the turn of the uh, century. Mars in 2030. Um, wow. I, I would say maybe by 2035, but we need um, to overcome some hurdles. Uh, number one, the medical issues that I um, briefly mentioned, leadership is issues. We need to have a, a political leader out there who inspires us all that this is a worthwhile endeavor. And then thirdly, I, I think we need countries to come together. There is no single country in the world, not the United States, not China, um, that can do this alone. It has to be a, a world effort. And um, each country can contribute their funding and contribute their industrial expertise. But yeah, 2035, I think it's realistic. Uh, 2030 might be, be pushing it a little bit. Cool. Thank you very Scott, much. Thank you so much for calling in tonight. Really appreciate it. And uh, till next guys. time, okay? Okay. All right. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone. Or uh, if you're on Facebook, follow the links there. You get to talk to Earl, and then you get to talk to Bob. And you also have to talk to me and John. Uh, we do have Craig coming up in just a moment, but it's the bottom of the hour, John, and that's usually time to do something. Yeah, and, and I came up with something to do. Well, last week I came up with something to do. Tonight's just the follow-up to last week, something to do. Last week, of course, we had Aaron and Rich on talking about their new book. And I'm going to hold it up again, Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. And uh, it's amazing. And their publisher, uh, Weldon Owen, was so cool to give us some copies to give away. So uh, the first copy that we're going to give away, we announced it last week. And uh, you wrote in, you tagged us, you tagged Weldon Owen, and uh, you answered the trivia question. Well, the trivia question should have been pretty easy for you all. It was the Retlaw. What is the Retlaw named after? Ken, you weren't here last week. What was the Retlaw named after? Well, first of all, I, uh, I have been reading Twitter. I didn't, <laughs> and I, what's funny is I haven't listened to last week's show, but I'm like, why okay. is everybody answering this question? We all right. know the reason. Right. It's because Walter Koenig uh, got his first writing credit, writing The Infinite Vulcan, and he named the plant uh, after his name, but just backwards. Yes, perfect. Yeah. That, that's yeah, exactly so. it. Well, uh, you all did what I asked you to do, which is you wrote into the show, you named the book, you named the publishing company, uh, you tagged us, you tagged Roddenberry. Good job. And then I have three witnesses here on the air with me who know what I did. I picked up my phone. I asked Siri to pick a random number. And the number it landed on, uh, that belonged to entry number four, and that was Patrick Lindsay. And he is at, I, I'm going to get this wrong. Either way, it, it's either at Mac Bass, if he loves fish, or it's at Mac Bass, if he loves a funky bass line. So whichever it is, Patrick, uh, either way, I, I think we can agree those are both great things. You get in touch with me, I'll get in touch with you, and you will get your very own signed copy of Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. So good job, Patrick. And now that is that is not my copy that you're giving away, is it? Oh, oh, uh, uh, sorry, because okay. I, you, you know, they were here. You weren't. I, I know. Yeah, you know. no, it's, it's, it's cool. Like, I mean, I knew the answer to the trivia question. OK, I, you say that. Yeah, but. well, I. <laughs> Say no, it now, dude. You remember later. me later? Oh, please! I was going to dress as a Felosian. That's right. I said Felosian. Yeah, you did. You did oh. right here in front of everybody. Yeah. Hopefully that won't get bleeped. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone, or uh, follow the links on Facebook, and and you'll be on with uh, you'll be on with Bob and us. Uh, Craig did one of those things. I think he called the number. Um, Craig, good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, did a sad about uh, John and Ken doing great work. Uh, oh. And hello, doc hello, Doctor Bob. Uh, you know, as far as transfer, as far as transportation, we just need a, a Heisenberg compensator to correct that random matter placement. But anyway, uh, the question <laughs> was. The long-term effects, my original question was the long-term effects specifically on the brain, because I read an article a while ago covering on it, the, the long-term effects that, and then, you know, you being a part of that, you know, uh, study, I don't know if you want to expand on that, but, but, but one other thing, um, just as far as Aaron Eisenberg, he used to be my uh, Sifu in Kung Fu uh, in Simi Valley, and uh, no one knew who he was in class. I knew, but, you know, we never talked about it. 
kind of taught me about a saying when a Taoist saying when one's name is becoming distinguished to fade into obscurity is the way of heaven. Well, I just miss him and uh, uh, was able to see him in Las Vegas, uh, which was great and hang out with him. But anyway, yeah. um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just a few weeks ago, we we, we definitely miss uh, Aaron, and uh, it's it's tough. It, it was really heartening to see all the uh, the the outpouring of of gratitude and celebration of uh, of Aaron. So that's uh, that's nice to hear that you got to spend some time with him. Uh, we'll kick it over to Bob then to answer the question about long term effects space travel on the brain, and where there's some specific concerns there. I, I don't know, uh, Craig, if there was anything in particular particular in this article that you read uh that you know i was gonna bring that but i just wanted he was he really expanded way beyond what i I had imagined so i don't know if he can add anything i can't add anything but uh, because his knowledge is like way beyond mine right now (laughs) but have a great evening gentlemen and uh love the show thank you craig till next time yeah so um craig i think that uh, as i mentioned weightlessness affects the functioning of every single organ system in the body including um the brain uh the vestibular apparatus which is uh, you know just at the base of your your brain is a classic example uh it basically goes on vacation for six months that you're aboard the international space station it can cause difficulties with balance and orientation and uh, when you're on orbit with motion sickness and Similarly, when you get back home, you can be motion sick for the first few days as well. I did not participate as a subject in a long-term investigation of brain function, but I did uh, participate in a, a you know a, a short duration uh, experiment. Um, anecdotally, astronauts who flew before me talked about something called the space stupids, which means that your cognitive function is perceived to be less sharp in space than, uh, than it is on, on Earth. We never documented that, uh, but we just had several astronauts coming back who said, you know, I just didn't feel mentally sharp up there, and therefore I really relied upon checklists an awful lot. Whenever I did even simple tasks, I relied on, on checklists to make sure that I didn't make, a, make an error. Um, so uh, I participated along with some of my crewmates in a, you know, a, a sophisticated neuroscience study to look at uh, cognitive function in space, basically to make a long story short, wired up our head with uh, like a 64 channel uh, EEG looking at our brain waves and looking at other um, physiological signals as, as well. And then played video games for about an hour and 10 minutes. I, I'm exaggerating when I, when I say that, but they, they gave us cha- challenging spatial uh, control tasks to do, memory tasks to, to do, orientation tasks to do and just evaluated uh, any changes in our cognitive function over um, the six months that we were in space. Um, my understanding, after having um, the investigators looking at several of us astronauts in space, that they could not document any significant change in cognitive uh, function. So that's, uh, that's the good news. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's still an effect of ionizing radiation on astronauts who spend a long period of time in space. And yeah, ionizing radiation we know can affect neurons. So uh, we'll see um, what happens in the in the years to come, the decades uh, to come, amongst astronauts who spent long periods of time in space. Hopefully, it's minimal. Uh, one of the other, uh, we're getting so many questions here, which are awesome. David said, um, now earlier you had talked about different types of uh, space vehicles, and you, you talk about moving away from chemical rockets. Um, I know your specialty is not necessarily rocketry, but I'm curious if there are any emerging or future technologies that you think we should keep our eyes on. David mentions, uh, is reading about plasma propulsion. Uh, somebody mentioned ion thrust propul- propulsion. Uh, where do you think maybe this is heading? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, in, in those two areas that you just mentioned, uh, plasma engines, ion thrusters, uh, and also solar sails, John. Uh, there's a, a, a space probe in space right now with a large solar sail, very lightweight. It might be made of mylar or something even lighter weight than, than that. And uh, there is a wind, a uh, photon wind up there in space. And, and you know, the, the thrust is extremely low because the mass of these photons is, is so low uh, that it takes a long, long time for these uh, spacecraft with the sails to accelerate. But they can get up to very high speeds as well. So 
that's one uh, area that we'll probably see um, get developed for long duration flights in the, in the years to come, solar sails. Ion thrusters, same thing. It had, they have very low um, thrust levels. You're not going to accelerate to high speeds quickly, but over a long period of time, you can um, you can really pick up some incredible speed. So, for example, you you could use a a plasma engine to launch yourself from Earth halfway to Mars, then turn your vehicle around backwards and then decelerate back uh, uh, down to Mars. That's that's another possibility. Uh, and then um, to get to orbital uh, flight, Earth orbit. And then uh, I think we're probably going to see space elevators in the next, I don't know, 100 years or so. Uh, space elevators basically means that you have a satellite up in Earth orbit uh, with a long cable that comes down into um, the lower atmosphere. You then fly up to the, the cable, attach yourself to it, and then a, an elevator takes you up the cable up into, um, up into orbit. Um, the problem there is the strength of the cable. Uh, the materials that we have right now to build cables uh, cannot support their, their own weight when you talk about cables that are, you know, 100 miles long. So um, we have to do some materials engineering there before we're ready for space elevators. But again, you know, I'm an optimist. I think in 100 years we'll be seeing, we'll be getting into space via space elevators. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call six six nine nine hundred six eight three three or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or if you're on Facebook, follow the links there and uh and, and you'll be on with uh with Bob. I have a I have a question and this is completely well, it's not completely off the science thing, but it is um we had Dr. Robert Hurt on a couple of weeks ago. He is a he basically deals with with taking the data that we get from satellites of of, of far space, you know, objects, nebula, and, and other stars and things like that. And he turns them into things that we can see, and I mean that we can understand. That the average guy, you know, looking on CNET's like, wow, look at that. That's a that's a horsehead nebula right there, or you know, whatever the thing is. There were a lot of things that he um, he got sort of hung up on. Uh, there were some movies that he that he sees, and he's like, hey, the science in this just takes me so far out of it. Other movies that he thought the science hit pretty well. I guess I have a couple of questions. You mentioned 2001, which, of course, is one of the – that's one of the movies that I think we all sort of acknowledge seems to have gotten a lot right, including the fact that there's no sound. And, you know, there are long periods where almost nothing seems to happen. <laughs> um, but – I'm wondering, like, you see something like Ad Astra, or you see something like Interstellar. Uh, do you see, well, this is all wrong, and they're getting it wrong, and they're doing a disservice, or do you see, look at that, there's Brad Pitt looking like an astronaut. Maybe that's going to get somebody interested in actual space. Uh, the way things are presented today, do you feel like the movies and TV, are they, are they doing good for science, or are they doing bad for science, or is it just a wash that the people who are going to be into science are going to be into science the people who are going to be into movies are going to be into movies. Well, of course, it, the answer is it depends. It depends on which movie you're you're seeing, Ken. Um, but I'm the kind of person, um, you know, I, I go to the, all these movies and I go with friends. And most of my friends, are they're just continually pointing out all the things that, that are wrong, scientifically or technically wrong with the movie. I don't do that. Um, I go to a movie and I say, they got this right, they got that right, they got um, that right. So a classic example would be uh, The Martian with Matt Damon. So a lot of the technologies that you saw in that, that movie, you know, the, um, the rover vehicle, that exists today. You can go, go, if you go down to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, you'll see it there. It's there. You know, it's running around the, the campus. Uh, it's there. Uh, the use of RTG, uh, nuclear power plants, that e exists today. Uh, the habitats, the spacesuit is in development at MIT in Boston right now. Um, even, you know, Matt Damon is growing crops in, uh, in his habitat, if you remember the, the movie as well. That technology also exists, is being developed in NASA Ames at the Kennedy Space Center and also at the University of Guelph in, um, in Canada. So a lot of the technologies in uh, The Martian, thank God for uh, Andrew Weir, the author, and for uh, Ridley Scott, the movie director, uh, who consulted with uh, experts. And, and not only presented a, a wonderful drama, a wonderful story that, that engaged us, but uh, got a lot of it uh, right. Now, there's some things that they got they got wrong. At the end of the movie, you know, Matt Damon removes his uh, his glove and gets a little bit extra propulsion from the um, pressure in his spacesuit. 
that's never going to happen. Um, the movie, similarly, the movie Gravity, you know, there's a few things that, uh, that are, that's wrong about gravity. Some of the orbital mechanics that um, we saw there, uh, so the orbital debris that was depicted, that's wrong. But, you know, the inside of the space station, the inside of the Soyuz vehicle, it looked pretty much like the real vehicle. So uh, kudos to, to those folks for, for getting it right. And, and so I agree with you, Ken. I think that uh, by and large, the, the science fiction movies today play a role like the Apollo missions in the, in the 60s and 70s of capturing young people's attention. And there's something about the space theme, you know, this appeal to our DNA of and the idea of discovery and exploration that, that captures our attention. And, and um, I, I think overall, the science fiction movies, even though they may not be 100% accurate, have a positive effect on, on, the genera- on today's generation to, to inspire us and help us to dream of uh, what could be. So now, I know, go ahead, Ken. Oh, sorry. Forgive me, John, really quickly, because I know John actually has important questions to ask. But while I've got you on culture, <laughs> um, Major Tom, Rocket Man, Space Oddity, Star Man, I'm curious, do you have a favorite space song? And, and feel free, you know, doesn't have to be one of those four if there's one that I forgot, <laughs> because people don't come up to me all the time and start singing space songs at me. I don't know if they do to you. Um, but do you have a favorite, in keeping with sort of the pop culture theme, uh, do you have a favorite, uh, I'm curious what your favorite space song is? You know, so I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. So that's, um, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Guess Who. Uh, but as I get older, you know, my my preference for music is actually sliding backwards to the, to the left there. So I, I like some of the crooning music. So Fly Me to the Moon uh, uh-huh. is um, is my favorite. Um, I also like uh, Night and Day, which you probably never heard of. It's I think it might be a Cole Porter. It is a Cole Porter song. I, I like yeah. jazz, and, um, and and those kinds of um, those kinds of songs they they put an image in my brain of like uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night, you know. And uh, so um, yeah, those are my my favorite songs. Anything that's got reference to the moon, the the sun, or stars, I'm a sucker for those. <laughs> nice. Well, I wasn't going to be too serious, but uh, since we were talking about science fiction, I wanted to, uh, since we are a Star Trek show, ostensibly, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, uh, some of the messages that you included in your lectures, uh, because that that's what uh, just absolutely thrilled me when uh, I saw the talk that you gave, is that um, you're addressing topics of leadership and cooperation and using Star Trek as an example of how you worked on the ISS. And um, I'm just curious if you can share a little bit of that with us and with our audience on uh, what, what it is, what are the lessons from Star Trek that you thought, hey, I'm, I'm actually living this, or we need to get better at this. So, um, you know, when you think about the right stuff or the, you know, the, the skills and aptitudes that astronauts need to have in order to work well in space. You know, I think first of all, what comes to your mind is skills in spacewalking or in rendezvous or in robotics or in assembly work, you know, and and yeah, certainly we, we need to have those uh, skills, but as I get older, I think that what's really important is to also have the soft skills, the, the personal skills, the non-technical skills, and the ones that are really important to astronauts are self-care and self-management, teamwork, group living, followership, leadership, uh, cross-cultural skills as well, in addition to decisiveness and vision and things like that. And these skills are, are so important that um, we actually select astronauts for long-duration spaceflight, according to um, what I just said, and some of the attributes that I just said, but we also train for it uh, as well. So after we become astronauts, that once we're assigned to uh, a crew, we'll go out into the into the wilderness, uh, into uh, you know the canyonlands or in the the cold uh, mountains of, of Wyoming, where we don't have enough food, don't have enough water, uh, where the temperature is ridiculously cold, for a week or two at a time, and we become accustomed to what we identify what our weaknesses are, our personal weaknesses are. I might become grumpy, you know, when I'm when I'm cold and I don't, I'm not a really good team member when I'm, when I'm hungry. Um, but we also begin to understand the strengths and weaknesses of our, of our colleagues as, as well. 
So uh, I think, John, what you're referring to is uh, a slide that I, I showed during one of my recent talks where I was talking about followership and leadership. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I know of quite a few uh, real-life leaders uh, who are out there, Winston Churchill, Ob uh, Barack Obama, and, and other folks like that are strong leaders. But on that slide, I showed, uh, I think, Captain Kirk, yeah. Spock, right. and uh, might have been uh, Dr. McCoy as well. Yeah. And I did that for two reasons. Number one, to talk, introduce uh, the topic of leadership and to talk a little bit about the style of leadership that astronauts use in space. And then also the importance of followership. I, I find that we spend so much time talking about uh, leadership that, uh, you know, most of us are not leaders. Most of us are followers. And you got to be a really good follower if you're going to be a, a good member of a, of a space crew. Followership is not sitting back and waiting for the commander to, you know, say, Bob, change out the, uh, the toilet canister. No, I proactively look for those tasks that enhance the mission objectives or something that the commander I know the next day is going to ask me to do. Well, as a follower, I'll just try to anticipate it and get it done um, right away. So followership is actually active. It's, uh, it's positive. And, and Spock, I think, is, is one of the a classic example, an exemplary example of a, of a good follower. He made Captain Kirk look good, you know. And Kirk depended on, on Scotty and depended on McCoy as well. Uh, to, to look good and accomplish the, uh, the mission objectives. Uh, and then, um, you know, the other thing about leadership, as I, I mentioned, is that leadership is not always directive. It's not always, hey, do this, do that. Uh, yeah, in an emergency situation aboard a spacecraft, yeah, leadership is directive. It has to be because we have to move quickly in order to save our lives. So if there's a fire aboard the space station, our commander, Gennady, will say, Bob, get on the communication to Mission Control. Frank, grab a, fa a fire extinguisher. Nicole, grab, grab some face masks. Uh, Mike, uh, let's go forward with the procedures. We're going to look for the fire. you got to move quickly. So that's about the only time where a crew commander or a leader will be directive. Otherwise, we'll have time as a crew to discuss the issue and by consultation or by consensus. Um, we will, uh, as a crew, come together with um, helping the leader make, make the, the correct um, decision. You can do that, you know, when you got a, a crew of a bunch of strong leaders, you know, and only one person is playing the role of, of leader. So, um, I, and I think if you look at a lot of the, um, the episodes, a lot of the movies of, um, you know, uh, Kirk and Picard, I, I think you will say, see that they take on the same kind of leadership role as well. There's not one style of leadership that, um, that Picard uh, exemplified, he made good use of his um, his crewmates to try to come up with a consensus and, and consult or, or delegate leadership. So um, those Star Trek characters are, are, are good exemplary role models for us. It sounds funny, but <laughs> they are. Not, not to us and not to our audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call. You got about uh, seven or eight minutes left, so if you have a question for Bob, or just pop them up in Facebook, because while my eyesight is horrible, uh, John can read those and he'll pass them along as well. Uh, really quickly before we get back to questions, I want to remind you about uh, some of the other podcasts that you can check out on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Shows like, well, Mission Log, for example, maybe you heard of that one. Uh, Priority One, Women at Warp, The Trek Files, Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam. I think they're coming close to the end of their first season, or I think we're coming close to the end of their first season. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. But the cool yeah. thing is it's all out there. So if you've missed it to this point, don't think, well, there's no point. No, it's all there. And you can find it all at one place, uh, podcast.roddenberry.com, or look for all of those shows wherever you get your podcasts. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833, or use the one tap from your smartphone or follow the links on uh, on Facebook. Uh, John, uh, again, my eyes. I have no. I, 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 well, uh, here's a, a quick fun one. Uh, Dave Taylor asks, what crew would you actually want to serve with? I mean, you mentioned Kirk, you mentioned Picard, both leaders, both different leadership styles, but a lot of the same positive qualities. Who would you rather serve with? Wow. Um I think Picard, um, I, because I, I probably um, 
more like um, Picard in, in style and in temperament. But, you know, if I want to have a good time, I think, <laughs> I think I'd go with Kurt. So, yeah. I, that is very similar to an answer I gave on this very show. So, oh, really? I, yeah, yeah, I, I totally I agree with you. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, you talked about how for so many, maybe all of the people that you've talked to who have uh, had a similar experience or has gone into space, either on a shuttle mission or spent time in the ISS, that there is a a transcendent moment there is an experience where you see the earth and it starts to become something very different in your eyes because you see the countries that sort of blend together into land masses without borders it changes your perspective of what humanity and what sort of our place in the universe is um I mean, first of all, I, I'm, I'm interested that you had time to be reflective and I'm interested if there was, did that feeling wear off or was there more than one of those experiences, uh, the days and days and days that you were there? And did you bring a piece of that back with you when you came back to earth? I remember my first view out the, the window uh, as, a, as a rookie astronaut. It was aboard the space shuttle Columbia. We just launched uh, about 10 minutes into the flight. I was busy, uh, you know, trying to help reconfigure the shuttle from uh, being a launch vehicle to being an orbiting laboratory. And someone tapped me on the shoulder and they said, Bob, look, and uh, there's a window there the entire time. And I looked out the window and it was uh, a view of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, the sun was glinting off the ocean. Beyond uh, the ocean was the curvature of the Earth's horizon. And then beyond the Earth's horizon was nothing but inky black space. And uh, this chill went down my spine because, you know, number one, I, I just realized a childhood uh, dream um, that, you know, of flying in space. But also I saw Earth for the first time as just a, a body out there in the vast expanse of, of nothingness. And um, so that makes an impression on you. And you, you see Earth as a vulnerable, fragile body out there. So, you know, I, I live in Ottawa. So today it was a beautiful day here. It's absolutely blue sky the entire day. And, you know, you look up and you see nothing but blue sky. And I could be forgiven if I would think of we have one plentiful resource on Earth. It's our atmosphere. And it's not true. Up in space, you see how little atmosphere that we have that you know, separates us from the vacuum of space, the extreme temperatures of space, the ionizing radiation of space. And it's just, so if you were to model the earth as, as a basketball, uh, the size of the earth is a basketball, all the atmosphere that we have that's keeping us alive is like one wrap of tissue uh, around that basketball. Hmm. And often I'd be up there on the space station window and imagine a giant coming by and going and blowing away all our atmosphere life would cease to exist. It's that razor thin. It's, it made me appreciate how darn lucky we are to be alive on, on this planet. It's not a whole lot of atmosphere or water that's, that's keeping us um, alive. Um, yeah, it's changed me permanently. Um, you know, I, we, a few minutes ago, we were talking with some of your listeners about some of the physiological effects of space flight. And for the most part, uh, the physiological effects are reversible after, um, you know, several months after you get back home. The psychological effects are not. Um, my wife jokingly tells me that I'd never returned to Earth from my last space flight. <laughs> and what she's talking about are the psychological uh, effects. Now I'm concerned about the big picture issues of society and, and humanity. You know, the, the major problems today are, um, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, the affairs of the Kardashian family. The major problems today are poverty, inequality overpopulation, environmental damage. It's so easy to see that uh, from space. And so my wife has trouble, you know, taking my mind away from these big thoughts and, you know, helping me and getting me engaged again in family and household matters again, because I, I'm just, um, you know, I've had that view of, of, of earth from space. And um, like we said at the top of the show, we need tens of thousands. We need hundreds of thousands of, of people to fly in, in space regularly and, and see this, that we're 
all one humanity. We're not separate nations. We're not tribes. Um, nationalism is um, is a horror that's being imposed on on civilization today. And in reality, we're an integrated civilization. The only way we can tackle some of these big problems that are out there right now, climate change is a classic example, is if we all come together. And um, this this rhetoric, this geopolitical rhetoric that's out there right now, it's not helpful. Uh, we need, um, I do my best as an astronaut to try to, you know, let people know that we need to come together and connect and collaborate. Um, but we need more people who um, are sending out that message as well. I cannot think of a better Star Trek message to have heard. I can't think of a better way to end our show. Um, I, I I can't thank you enough for uh, spending time with us and, and sharing that great message with us. Uh, it, it's been a, a true honor and a pleasure. And I hope I get to cruise with you again someday. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Earl. Thank you. Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live by Earl Green. Uh, be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be cool. Uh, Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. Thanks to everybody who joined us live or later. And we will talk to you next week. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.